Good morning. Give me Jesus. What an amazing song. And let's give this worship team a great hand. They're great job leading us today. Let me pray with you. Father God, I pray that we would sense your holy presence today. And Father God, that you would lay upon our hearts what we need to do in the waiting room. And Father, you know why we're there. Some of it because of the unfortunate things of life. Some of it because of the choices that we made. And for some, it's because the choices someone else made. And Father, I pray that in the waiting room that we would invite Jesus to be with us. And that you would guide us through this time together today. That you would speak to those who you want to speak to. That you would speak through me so that Jesus Christ could be more famous. That Jesus Christ can be received into someone's life today. So be with us right now. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now over the last uh, two weeks, we've been preaching a sermon series called The Waiting Room. On the waiting rooms of life. We said they're hard because they're full of uncertainty, waiting on a result. Some of you have been in that room, whether you're there waiting on a result from a a scan or a, a diagnostic test or waiting on someone to make a decision uh, that's going to impact your life, maybe waiting on a boss or waiting on a child to get home, whatever, you've been in that place of waiting And we've talked about how, even though we maybe don't always feel it, but God is always faithful to be with us in the waiting rooms of life. Last week, we talked about that in the waiting room, that God is always up to something bigger, bigger than what we fully understand, that God works in the midst of our waiting. God works in the midst of our waiting. Now, one of the things that I love to do, I have a lot of hobbies, but one of my favorite hobbies um, and maybe a little bit too much sometimes is cooking. I love to cook and uh, I love to, to go and buy stuff and, and prepare stuff for Lynn and I or even uh, have friends over. I love to cook. And you know, one of the things I've learned about being a, 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 a good cook or somebody that wants to be a good cook is that it takes both time, marinating, and tasting, right? So, so really good um, recipes, you have to build layers of flavor. You know, it just doesn't happen. You can't put it on high and get it done real quick. And then, you know, it's going to taste very good, right? Somebody gave me a recipe the other day for a venison cube steak, you know, and, and they, they said that you, you saute some, uh, some, some peppers up. Some of you writing this down, I watch you, right? So saute some peppers up. And then you take the cube steak and you wrap it around the uh, peppers, put a toothpick in it, and then marinate it for an hour in pineapple juice. Ah, sick of the head out there. And then you grill it on the grill. Now, I haven't tried it yet, but, but again, that's going to take a little time, a little, little preparation, a little, uh, little, little marinating, etc. And we don't really like to do that. But the other thing important about cooking is tasting as you go. You got to taste a little bit of it, you know? You know, you got to just sample a little bit of it, make sure that it's the right seasoning, the, the, it's, it's getting close to being done. And, and, and here's what happens when we taste stuff and we're cooking, it can be dangerous, right? 
Nothing will ruin a good meal like burnt taste buds, right? You know, because we tend to taste stuff when it's hot. Did you know that 96% of Americans will knowingly consume extremely hot food or drink that burns their mouth, you know? 96%, you know, gotta have it, gotta have it right now, and oop, should've waited, should've waited. How many of you have done that, right? Um, we, um, we noticed something about Aaron, our son, when he was four, five years old, that he would eat his pizza upside down. And we're going like, what's with the pizza upside down? And he would say, hey, I don't burn the top of my mouth, you know? I'm going, hey, not, not a bad idea, right? Just eat the pizza upside down. Now, I'm sure the tongue was fried, but the top of the mouth was good, right? You know, I want to look at uh, choices that we make. Choices that we make that put us in the waiting room of life. A disobedience with the will of God that put us in a waiting room and, and cause us to even delay or derail our God-given purpose. I want to spend a few minutes looking at the book of Judges. Now, whenever Trevor and Grace Marie, uh, who were helping develop this series, said, hey, uh, Pastor Jeff, you're going to be preaching uh, on the book of Judges. I'm going, seriously? The book of Judges? If you've got, you got a chapter, no, just the book of Judges, right? Just cover the whole book. I'm going to say, oh, you can't cover the book of Judges in one setting. But the book of Judges, if you've read it, again, if you're going to read... Um, uh, to your children, you may want to highlight, skip over some of the book of Judges, because it is, it is a gruesome book. Because it's a book about the failures of God's people, who failed because they didn't pay attention to warning. They didn't wait to see what God wanted them to do. They just jumped into things in the book of Judges. And I believe that the, the challenge with the book of Judges is that, that God has called us as his people, not just to experience his will, but to demonstrate who he is to the world, right? And so, the, so in the book of Judges, God has blessed his people, prepared his people to, to be a light, to, to, to bless the world. I love what Isaiah 49, 6 says. God says, I'm setting you up as a light for the nations so that my salvation becomes global. From the message version. You see, God has always wanted to use a people to demonstrate who he is, his character, his, his love, his passion, what, what, what's important to God. And Jesus called us to be a light to the world. And, and again, in the book of Judges, the people are, are set up to do that. They're, they're to go into this land and, and be an example of who God is and what God wants them to be. The world is waiting. I want you to hear this. The world is waiting to see what God is like. The world is waiting to see who Jesus is. And, and, and oftentimes that gets derailed and delayed because of our choices that we make. I was reading in my Lenten devotion uh, yesterday about a man named Ricky who became a follower of Jesus after a very destructive first half of his life. And he was very passionate about uh, Jesus in his life. He tells him an encounter he had with one of his friends from his old life. He approached his friend and said, if I was driving past your house and saw that it was on fire, would you want me to tell you about it? And the family responded, of course I would. And Ricky replied, okay, then your house is on fire and proceeded to tell him about the gospel of Jesus. Now, some people would think that's too confrontational, but Jesus would think that's compassionate. That, that we as God's people need to see there's a world that's waiting to hear about Jesus. 
about God's love, God's purpose. But how often do we not get around to that because we make choices that take us out of the game, out of God's purpose? Again, you look at the backstory of Judges, that God's people have been delivered from slavery in Egypt. God is preparing them to be a people, to make an impact in the world. And because of their, their disobedience, they spent the next 40 years waiting in the wilderness, waiting to be the people of God, to make an impact in the world. And then finally, with Joshua's leadership, they arrive in the promised land. And they're to go in and, and, and you know, make the land their land, but also to reach the people that live there with the word of God, the, who God is and God's purpose. You know, I want you to know this, that when God leads you into the promised land, it's never just for yourself. It's to share the, God, the love of God with others. You know, when you're blessed, you're blessed to be a blessing, right? We know that. We, we got a trailer full of food out there because we've been blessed to be a blessing. And there's this, there's this warning given to the people of God as they go into the promised land is watch out and don't compromise with the beliefs of the people around you. And, and I would say the, the only way that you and I are gonna reach the world with the love of God is not to become just like the world. When we become just like the world, it disqualifies us from reaching the world with the love of God. So let me talk to you a moment about the curse of compromise. Last week in here, Trevor talked about the curse of comparison. This week, the curse of compromise. The children of Israel compromised what they believed because they wanted to chase the culture around them. And, and, and even though God tells us that real freedom is found in him, Somehow we think it's found just over there. And, and the grass is a little greener over there. And those people must really be experiencing happiness because of what they're doing. I want to try some of that. And, and it begins a, a process. I want to read to you from Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 15. Kind of the curse of compromise. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. How many times in the, in the wedding rooms of life do we forget what God has done in the past? You know, we wonder, where's God at? Well, we've forgotten about his faithfulness. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors. The God of their ancestors. The God of your ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them. I've got that underlined in my Bible. I've got it highlighted. Worshiping the gods of the people around them. And they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal in the images of Eshtoth. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel, so he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated, just as he had warned, and the people were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers, yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors, who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. You know, one of the questions I get asked 
as we look uh, after being in ministry here for 25 years as uh, Lynn and I together here at the church and knowing that uh, I'm not going to be here another 25 years and that's just not feasible, not realistic and not doable. Uh, what's, what's, what's the next 10 years looks like? What, 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 what is, what's Mount Hor going to be like in 10 years whenever I'm no longer the senior pastor? And I tell you, my, my, my hope and prayer is that this church does not forget the faith of their ancestors, the, the, the faith that has built this church into what it is today. And as a pastor, you know, trust me, you, know, you want to lay a great foundation for a church, and your prayer is that the church is certainly strong enough and, and equipped and prepared to move forward on the plan that God has for it. But we've got to hold on to the faith of those people who laid a foundation. You know, and this is, this is what uh, God is warning the people here in the book of Judges. And so the book of Judges is this book about the failures of God's people because they forgot the faith of their ancestors. A book about self-destruction because they turn away from God. And again, what happens is that in the curse of compromise, Israel can no longer be distinguished from the rest of the world. They look no different than the world around them. And my friends, if we're going to be the light to the world, we can't look like the rest of the darkness that lives around us. We've got to be able to be different for the cause of Christ. Because of the disobedience, God allowed them to be conquered and oppressed by the people around them. So throughout the book of Judges, and if you want to read it later today and you know, just be prepared, it's kind of a gloom and doom book, 410 years of what I would call recycled regret. Recycled regret. Disobedience, disaster, despair, and then deliverance over and over again for 410 years. Disobedience, disaster, despair, and deliverance over and over again. 400 plus years of not living into their God-given purpose. That's 15 generations. 15 generations missing out on what God had called them to do. Now, I believe that today we live in a postmodern world that is increasingly growing more and more secular, moving away from the faith of our ancestors, living in a world where everybody decides to do what is truth for them. Judges 17, 6. And it's th this verse is found three different times in the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. They had no king, and so they did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And we call that relative truth, where we do whatever we think is right. And, and if it's right for you, then it must be okay. And we don't want to confront anybody about what they think is right because it's right for them. And, and I believe that truth is not relative. I believe that truth is absolute. And I believe that truth is based on the word of God. And as Christians, that is our basis. That is our foundation. And Jesus said, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person that when the storms of life come and the, the waiting times of life come, that house will stand. It will not crumble. It will not fall because it's built on the rock of my words, the solid foundation of Jesus. You see, Paul said it this way in Romans that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. 
We are to live in this world to be a light, to, 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 to spread who God, the love of God and the purposes of God, the kingdom of God, the love of Jesus Christ. But we're not to be of the world. And there's a difference between being in the world and being of the world. To be of the world means I take my cues from the world. I take my cues from what the culture says. And, and that's where I get my information. That's where I get my values from the world. But to be truly authentically in God's purpose, I've got to get my cues and I've got, got to get my information and I've got to read that through the word of God. I would say to you this morning that the culture, I wish, you know, if I had to go back and do my college over again, I, I would love to spend more time studying history because history will tell us that culture is always temporary. We, we can see that, that culture evolves and, and changes throughout generations and generations, but I believe the word of God is eternal. Culture is temporary. The word of God is eternal. So I wanna, I wanna base my decisions and my values on what I see in the word of God, not from what I see in the culture. And that was what happened in the Judges. The book of Judges is that people of God took their cues from the culture. I wanna drill down for just a few minutes on one of the Judges, actually the last judge in the book of Judges. And, we, and many of you know him, you've maybe heard about him in Sunday school or vacation Bible school or read about him or saw a movie about him, and that's the man named Samson. And I call this uh, section the collapse of a champion because Samson was set up to be the champion for God's people. His life began with a promise. His life began with a purpose. Before Samson's birth, an angel came to his barren mother and told her that she would conceive a son and that God had chosen her son to be the one who would begin delivering his people from the Philistines. Sound like a familiar story from the Gospel of Luke? That the Holy Spirit came upon a woman and told her that her son will be the savior of the world? So we got Samson here, who God has a purpose for him. And, in, and God laid upon uh, Samson's uh, mother that she would be a Nazarite, and that she should raise Samson as a Nazarite, which means basically three things, three vows that she, she or he would never defile themselves by touching a dead body. It was a Nazarite vow. They would never drink alcohol or eat fermented foods. And thirdly, never cut their hair. Those are just some of the, those are the three things that set a Nazarite apart. And, and God had laid upon this mom, her heart, that she would be a Nazarite, that Samson would be a Nazarite. And if Samson lived in to this God-given purpose, he would deliver his people from the captivity, from the oppression, from the disasters that they were experiencing at the hands of the Philistines. And Samson became the strongest warrior in his land. He became mighty, he became famous, he became somebody who, who the people of God could look to as a deliverer. But then Samson began to do what seemed right in his own eyes. He began to ignore the principles that God had given his mom about his life. He had a lot of amazing things that he did, some really you know, you know, crazy things that he did. He tied 300 foxes together, lit their tails on fire to burn a Philistine field. I mean, you know, he did some pretty dramatic things. But all the things that Samson did, he didn't do them to honor God. He did them to vindicate himself. And all of his successes led him to forget his God-given identity, who God had made him to be. He trusted his own strength instead of the strength that God had given him. 
And ultimately, it was Samson's lust for women, and primarily a woman by the name of Delilah, that led to his demise. It's a classic story of tragedy. It's that deliverance, uh, disobedience, disaster, despair story. Recycled regret. Now, I want to give you the recipe for regret that led to Samson's demise, that, that led to him being in a waiting room and, and continued the people of God to be in a waiting room. The, the first part of regret, that recipe for regret that Samson had was he, he desired something. He desired it. He saw something and he wanted it. He was, he was, he was chasing what the world had to offer. That looks really good. That looks like something I want or someone I want, and I desire it. And the second uh, part of the recipe that led to his uh, wedding room of regret was he, he felt that he deserved it. He, he was entitled to it. And I'm going to tell you that those are two very dangerous things. When you desire something that you shouldn't have, that God doesn't want you to have, and then somehow you begin to rationalize that you deserve it. You know, I've really worked hard. I've really, you know, been under a lot of stress. You know, things have been kind of crazy. I, I really deserve this. I want it, and I deserve it. And here's the third thing that led to his demise. He thought he could defeat it. He thought he could handle it. I can handle it. I can do whatever I want to do, anytime I want to, with whomever I want to, because nobody will get hurt, and I can handle it. I can fix it. I can solve the problem. And that led to a, a wedding room of regret. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've experienced that in your own life. You've made some choices because you wanted something that God didn't want you to have. You, you thought you deserved it. And then you figured, surely I can handle this. And now you're in a wedding room of regret because you made choices that put you there. And you wonder how in the world are you ever going to get out of there? You know, it's difficult to wait, but it's much more difficult to regret. I, I'm sharing my first ever Stephen Furtick quote here, so he's just be on record here. It does a great job. Lynn and I got to go up there and, and hear him preach if, uh, back when we were on sabbatical. But I love this quote. He says this, the only thing harder than waiting is wishing that you had. A lot of truth in that statement, isn't it? The only thing harder than waiting is wishing that you had. For Samson, the curse of compromise put him in the waiting room of regret. And when you're in the waiting room of regret, you always sometimes want to think that God is a problem. But I'm telling you, in the waiting room of regret, God's not the problem. You're the problem. And you're not waiting on God to move. God's waiting on you to move. God's waiting on you to come to your senses when you make choices that put you in the waiting room of regret. Now, near the end of his life, Samson is humiliated. He's defeated. Life is a disaster. He's in chains. He's been blinded. He's lost both of his eyes. He's in pretty much a hopeless situation because he served the culture instead of serving God. He was in a bad place. There were consequences for his compromise. I want you to hear this. This is very important this morning. Don't mistake consequences for condemnation, okay? If we make bad choices, there's gonna be consequences. 
But consequences does not mean the same thing as condemnation. That even Samson, as, as wrong as he got it, his story was not over. And no matter how many bad choices you've made today, if you're in that place, your story is not over. You know, we are free to choose to do what we want to do, but we're never free from the consequences of our choices. There will be consequences. And Samson was living into those consequences. I love what he said in Judges 16, 28. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me again. Oh God, please strengthen me just one more time. And with one blow, let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. How many times have you prayed that prayer? Just one more time. God, will you show mercy on me one more time? I've been there. I'm sure you've been there. You know, the Apostle Paul said, the very thing that I, that I, that I do is not what I want to do, and the very things that I don't do, you know, it's a whole, this whole conflict. You know, we've been there where we said, gosh, Lord, I, I, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Would you have mercy on me one more time? And guess what? We, we, we serve a God of mercy, a God who, who hears our cries of repentance, who hears our cries for mercy. And, and, and here's Samson. He's messed everything up just one more time. And God hears his prayers. I want to give some hope for those who are in a waiting room of regret. Three things for you very quickly this morning. If you're in a waiting room of regret, I want you to know that, first of all, it's never too late. It is never too late. No matter how guilty you feel, no matter how burdened you feel, it's never too late. And one of the lies straight from the pits of hell is that what's wrong with you is unfixable. What's wrong with you is unfixable. And a second part of that lie is nobody else has done what you've done. That's a lie too. Because everybody in this room is a sinner. And everybody in this room has done something they thought was unfixable. But by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, by amazing grace, it's never too late. Secondly, I'd want you to know that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. I believe that some of our deepest regrets can result in God's greatest revelations. It's when we're at the place of our deepest regret. If we'll, if we'll cry out to God and God have mercy on me, God, one more time, would you give me strength again? Then we can receive some of God's greatest revelations and the third thing I'd want you to know, the next step is yours. The next step is yours. God's already made his move. He sent his son to down a cross for your sins. He's waiting for you to cry out, oh God, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. Because I have made some bad choices. You know, as I look at the story of Samson, you go into the New Testament. Guess who shows up in Hebrews chapter 11? In the Hebrew Hall of Fame, Samson. Samson is recorded, you can read about it in Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 34, as it lists some of the Old Testament heroes of the faith. And trust me, Samson did not live his life like a godly hero. But because at the very end of his life, when it was, when it was not quite over, he cried out for mercy. So today, my folks, you too can cry out for mercy. You know, I had this sermon whirling around in my head the last couple weeks, and and I was walking around the church last Sunday because of, uh, I like to do that when I'm not preaching and just stopping in some different classrooms and checking on people. And I realized as I walked into a particular classroom 
that there were people in that classroom who were, had come together in a place of community and they were in, in somewhat of a waiting room to, to, to kind of pull their life back together. And they were in that waiting room, not because of their choices, but because of somebody else's choices that had put them in a difficult place in their life. And as I reflected back on that, and as I just got back from being in Kentucky for my dad's funeral, and I got to see uh, my sister Yvonne, who I haven't had a relationship with in, in many, many, many years, I remembered that part of our challenge we have between the two of us and part of our challenge growing up was that our mother made some really bad choices. How bad were her choices? I remember at the age of five that social services came to take us out of the home. And then for two years, we got put into foster care. It wasn't our choice. We didn't do anything to deserve that. We were five and, and six. But for two years, our life was put on hold because of her poor, poor choices. And I remember that my dad, before he became a believer in Jesus, when I was 14 years old, my, mom, my stepmom became pregnant. And my dad had an affair and moved out of the house and left my stepmom there with me and being pregnant. And I watched for the next three years the tailspin that put my stepmom in. A place of of depression, a place of feeling overwhelmed. And, 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 and that left an indelible mark on me that, that somehow that wasn't right. And, and what can I do to help fix that? And, and when you're 14, you should have to fix those kinds of things, right? But that was a choice that someone made that put us in a waiting room we didn't ask for. And it's been a lot of years of my life learning to deal with some of those things that happened to me. As I look back on my life, and those weren't great experiences, but it made me a different person. It, it, it caused me to become a father who never wanted his kids to go through that. It, it caused me to be a husband that never wanted to abandon his wife and walk out when she was pregnant. And, and, I, and I, as I shared a few weeks ago, I'm so thankful that my dad became a believer later in his life. And, 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 and turn things around in his life and tried to go back and correct some things. But there were consequences you had to deal with. So I wanna give you, if you're in that waiting room, not by your choice, but because someone else made some choices that put you there. Maybe you're, maybe you're 14 and maybe your, your parents are going through a separation or divorce. And, and you're, you feel like your life is being put on hold. Or maybe you're here as a single person because your spouse made choices that put you in a place of singleness that you didn't plan on at this point in your life. I want to tell you three things that I had to learn. And with God's grace, not because it was totally God's grace, is, is we got to face that pain. We got to run toward God. We got to resist regret and resentment by rejoicing in the grace of God. And if you will receive Jesus into that mess, invite him into that mess, he can deal with your anger and your resentment and you can face that pain. Hebrews chapter four says, we have a great high priest who has been tempted in all ways yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Trust me, as a 14 year old, I ran to the throne of grace and God's grace helped me navigate the rest of my life. 
and I'm prepared to be a pastor today because of what I went through as a child because of the grace of God. Not because I got through it. It was by the grace of God that I got through it. So face your pain. Number two, folks, I want to tell you it's important to transform the pain. Don't transfer the pain. You know, my stepmom, bless her heart, she didn't know how not to transfer the pain, so the rest of us suffered too, right? And that sometimes happens when we're in a lot of pain. Instead of allowing God to transform our pain, we just simply transfer our pain to other people. And they, the ones that we love the most, suffer the most because of the pain that we're feeling. I believe that God wants to transform our pain and not cause us to give it to others. I love this quote from Lisa Turkus. Did I say that name right? Uh, my wife's reading this book, and she read me this quote. God wants to transform us, but Satan wants us paralyzed. It's a great word because Satan wants to take that pain and paralyze you, but God wants to transform that pain into something useful and purposeful. When you're in the midst of pain, expect God to move in unexpected ways. I can tell you, I never thought that my life would end up where it ended up because God did something unexpected. He began to pour into me in unexpected ways that set me free from a lot of pain. He can do that for you today as well. Don't let hurt steal your hope. Don't let hurt steal your hope. See, I believe that the evil one wants to steal everybody's hope in this room. But because of the grace of God, don't let hurt steal your hope. And then finally, I would say to you, lead through the pain. The waiting room prepares us to help others in the waiting rooms of disappointment. And one of the themes that I learned in, in, in seminary uh, to, to study the Bible is a little uh, Bible study law called preparation realization. That, that as you read the text, it's preparing you to realize something. I believe that pain is preparation for some realization where God is gonna use that pain to help us realize something that we can help others. Lead through your pain. You know, even when you don't feel like you can lead, lead through your pain. That was exactly what was going on in that Sunday school class that I walked in last week. People were leading through their pain to help others in pain. And one last quote here this morning from uh, Christine Kane. I read this yesterday. Just because we experience failure, that doesn't make us a failure. Just because you've had failure in your life, that doesn't make you a failure. I had to learn that. When I was ashamed to bring Lynn, who I was engaged to, to my house as a young college student because I was ashamed, I thought that was a failure. I had to realize that I wasn't a failure just because I was, had grown up in failure. I had to believe that God could, could, could bring a real marriage into my life, not because I was a failure, but because he could do it, you know? And, it, and it, that was, I, I never forget when I finally heard God say that to me. It's just because you lived in failure doesn't mean you are a failure. Amen. Isn't that great to know that God says to us, I can lead you out of failure. And some of you are in that place this morning where you're in a place of failure. It doesn't mean that you are a failure. And I want to challenge all of us to, to this verse, back to Judges 17, 6. In those days, Israel had no king. They had no king. And all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. See, the book of Judges and the rest of the Old Testament point us toward the one true king. There is a king that has come, and his name is Jesus. I did a funeral last week ago Saturday, and we sang in the, song, in the funeral, the king is coming. The king has come. The king has come. 
You know, we don't need a king to rescue us from political problems, but one who will rescue us from ourselves. We, we, we need a king to rescue us. I love what First Timothy says, for at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only almighty God, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. So I would invite you today to crown Jesus as the one true king in your life. You know, we live in a world today where people are doing whatever seems right in their own eyes because they don't have a king. They've never surrendered their life to the king of kings. Together they will go to war against the lamb, Revelation 17, but the lamb will defeat them because he is the Lord of all lords, the king of all kings, and his called and chosen faithful ones will be with them. And one day, my friends, this word from Philippians 2, Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this morning, if you find yourself in a waiting room of regret, I would invite you, God invites you, to bring Jesus into your mess, to bring Jesus into your regret, and to make him the king of your heart. And if you're in a place of waiting because of someone else's choices, you feel like you're never gonna get out of this delay, your life has been derailed, invite Jesus to be the king of your heart. You know, the real question today for us is this. For some of us here in the room today, and I would say for most of us in the room here today, that Jesus Christ is present in our lives. He's present. He's a part of my life. And for some in this room today, Jesus Christ is even prominent in your life. He's, he's important in your life. But you know, Jesus being present and Jesus Christ being prominent doesn't make him king of your heart. And what needs to happen is you need to move from the place of Jesus being present or Jesus being prominent to Jesus being preeminent. Amen? That he is preeminent. He's number one in my life. He's the king of my heart. He's the navigator of my soul. Jesus. See, when we, we move from prominent to preeminent, we move from deliverance to devotion. We move from selfishness to surrender. I shared this part of this word with the men's prayer breakfast on Friday morning. And after it was over, one of our men, who, Colonel Eddie Moorhead, who was at the Pentagon on the day the plane was crashed into the Pentagon and Colonel Eddie Moorhead helped rescue people out of the Pentagon. And he said he remembered the training that he had learned in fire training that a fireman would teach that when you get in a smoke-filled room in a dark place, that you drop to your knees and you crawl. You drop to your knees and you crawl. You see, there's many of us in the room that need to drop to our knees and make Jesus our king. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. My folks, we need to do that today. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you that you sent Jesus to be our king. 
And we know that when we don't have a king, that we, we end up doing whatever seems right in our own eyes. And Father God, we, you know that all of us have been there. All of us have been in that place. And Father, I thank you that for some in this room that they've invited you into their life and they've, they've made you preeminent. You're their king and I praise you and thank you for that, Father God. But I know there are also people here today that, that you're present in their life. They reach out to you from time to time. Some, in, in some people's lives, you're very, you're very prominent, but you're not preeminent. And Father, for me right now, I confess to you, there are times I don't make you preeminent. There are times when you're very prominent. It seems like you're always present, but there's times I do what seems right in my own eyes. Forgive me for that, Father God. And I thank you that you, you, you forgive us when we repent of that. And Father God, right now, I invite you to be preeminent in my heart. I invite you to be the king of my heart so that I can be about fulfilling your purpose to go and change the world. So Father God, move in people's hearts today and become the king of our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name.